0: you're listening to the autism weekly podcast each week we share community voices and bring light to stories that increase awareness acceptance equity access and inclusion if you haven't already subscribe to join the autism weekly family i'm your host jeff skibitzky this week we welcome michelle rogers back to the podcast for those of you who are new listeners michelle appeared in two of our previous episodes in episode 108 we talked about potty training in episode 112, spoke about communication skills and building those communication skills. On today's episode, I think we're gonna hit the trifecta. So Michelle is here to talk about behavioral issues, more specifically severe behaviors. This topic is crucial for parents of autistic children um, to understand because they, they greatly affect the quality of life for both the child and the family. Through her own experience as a mother with autistic child, Michelle's gained valuable insight into the challenges faced by many families and she has not only helped her own daughter thrive but also hundreds of mothers and their autistic children through advocacy work and extensive knowledge in the field. Michelle, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me again.
0: It's uh it's my pleasure. It's always fun to be able to talk just because it really brings in the parental perspective and as a field, if we're not doing that and engaging regularly, with parents and other stakeholders, we're probably not doing things right. So um, I do appreciate you coming in. And if I'm correct, this is the third part of your of the core teaching that you do, am I right?
1: Correct, so I have this philosophy that I share with all of my families that says that um, I want you to be working on the big three. And these are the three life skills that I believe all children on the spectrum, no matter how severe their autism symptoms present, need for a chance at an independent life. And the first one is body training. The second one is communication. And the third one is reduced problem behavior or zero problem behavior. And the reason I want that is because I want them to be able to sit and attend and learn in school. And no, you-
0: and absolutely. And, and oftentimes these are safety behaviors. And these are things that, as parents, is that we probably have the most trepidation and fear of is, Am I putting my child in, a, in a, a situation where they could injure themselves? They could injure others. They could engage spontaneously in something that maybe puts them in harm's way. But can you give me just a little bit of background before we hop into that? Um, not everybody has has heard all the episodes you've been a part of, but maybe you can tell us just a little bit about how your child has shaped or influenced your approach towards treatment and care over the years?
1: Sure. So uh, my daughter, Juliana, she was my first. Uh, She was diagnosed on the spectrum at age two. Um, There were definite signs. In hindsight, you can always see things clearer than when you were in the thick of it. And I was in straight up denial. I believe that she was just kind of developing in her own time, but there were just some really clear red flags when i think back to it now she had language she had some language and lost it um i remember feeling like a black cloud had kind of just traveled over her head suddenly around 13 months and i remember even saying to my mom you know where did my happy baby go um she started to um she you know she drooled when she uh was teething but then all of a sudden it, it stopped and then all of a sudden i was buying bibs by the boatload she was drooling nonstop, like it was just constant drool coming out of her mouth and then she, instead of would playing with her toys, she would dump them out of her toy bin and she'd just start twisting them in her hands with, like, no real, not using it for its intended purpose. And I was still in denial, believe it or not, you see all this and I'm like, no, no, I think that, you know, everyone's just overanalyzing and overthinking this. And um, finally, I guess a family member that was out of town had come in to visit and said, wow, you know, she's really quiet, like she's not talking. And I was like, oh, all right, you know, I'm hearing it. I'm like, fine, I'm just going to get an evaluation. I'm going to see, you know, what's going to happen and just sh- prove everybody wrong. And immediately they came in and she was probably about, I want to say she was about 22 months at this time. And I was pregnant with my son. I was very pregnant. So I was about eight months pregnant with him. And they said, you know, she's not behind. She's definitely behind, but too young to diagnose because she wasn't too yet. And I'm like diagnosed for what I had, I was still so like completely had no idea what they were talking about. And they said, you know, if it seems like we're going to give you some speech and we're going to give you uh, some special ed sessions. But if it seems like it's, she's not getting better, then call us back in. And I remember being so angry after he left. I'm like, I'm mean, you're never going to see me again. I totally disagree with everything you're saying. Complete denial. I was com- on the complete denial train. And um, over the next couple of months, it, it actually did start to, to get worse. And and people were questioning it. And I remember I'd, I'd already had her enrolled in a, uh, you know, a regular preschool like a nursery school and within a week I started getting the calls every day that she was having a hard time settling down trying to get emotional shit a hard time following directions and then we went for her wellness visit uh, a month late she was uh, I think it was at the end of November a couple of weeks later of her second birthday and I'd asked the doctor the pediatrician there and I said you know Everyone's saying she's behind, but look at her, right? There's She's not behind. I was still in denial with all of this going on. And he said, you know, well, she's, is she using 20 words with intent? And I said, no. And he's like, well, then she's definitely behind. And there was something about him saying it after hearing all of the people and the teacher at her nursery school. It was like a gut punch to me. And it was finally the kind of the straw that broke the camel's back with like maybe something is wrong here. And I did have that person I swore I'd never see again back in my home. And she was officially diagnosed on the spectrum, moderate to severe. So, yeah, so I had the, I understand exactly what parents that are listening right now are going through. I know exactly what it's like to feel like I died that day, you know, Hmm. like autism was a death sentence. And I thought that for a while. And I remember having this thought one day, I woke up and I said, you know, I'm going to die one day and who's going to care for her? Uh, when I'm gone. And it, something about that thought, even though it's kind of scary, just really snapped me into my action. I said, listen, I always promised before autism came that I was going to show up as a certain type of parent. And as soon as di- the diagnosis came, I kind of went out the window. And I need to know that one day when I do leave this earth that I've left no stone, stone unturned for her, that I've shown up exactly as I promised I would be before the diagnosis came. And I didn't know by changing, making that definitive direction course correction that i was going to get the results i did get with her i just knew that i could have peace in my heart that i had shown up for her okay. and just to give you a quick update on juliana juliana lost all of her language um, we had to teach her sign language she started making sounds um started repeating speaking um she where she went from the most restrictive special education preschool she was in a 614 the most restrictive one you could be in it was an autism class to where she is today. She is now 10 years old, thriving. This is her first year in a general education classroom. we were in integrated up until this point, which I loved. I didn't even hate integrated. I loved it. And they said to us last year at our IEP meeting, Mrs. Rogers, trying not to cry, I think she's ready. I'm sorry. But like, you just never, you know, if I thought about where I was when I was like, checked out and thought this was this death sentence, that we were able to have a meeting like this Mm -hmm. um, last year, I would have never believed you, you know, and uh, this is what's possible for all babies, possible for all families, Mm -hmm. but you have to kind of get right in your mind to take the action from somebody who believes versus somebody who disbelieves.
0: Yeah. So, and and you, to be honest, is that uh, I did, you should never apologize for, for having uh, <laughs> tears of pride is the way that I'd be looking at this. The tears of anything, you should never have to apologize. But I mean, it, I could see in your face how proud you were of your daughter's accomplishments and the fact that she has been able to establish so many skills. And you guys did that journey together, yes. um, which is Amazing, and the amount of effort that everybody's been putting in um, throughout the throughout the process. But you had mentioned something, and you'd you'd spoken about different behaviors that kind of indicated that something was going on. And maybe this is where I'd love to be able to to start our conversation today. Is that problem behavior is defined so differently depending on who you're talking to. And it's also defined differently, um, I mean, even for the neurotypical population, it's like, it's it's defined so differently in what you target and what you're going to work on. When I look at my daughter, is that my daughter really wants to be an athlete. One thing that keeps her back from doing that is uh, surprisingly nail biting because it takes her attention away from what she's doing when she's out on the field. She's so engaged in biting her nails. Thus, it's a problem behavior. Would I care about her nail biting if it wasn't causing her any sort of problems throughout the rest of her day or to her goals in her own life? Probably not. But because it's interfering with her personal goals, to me, that is the biggest problem behavior in the world. As a parent, it's like, well, we got to fix this. Let's take a step back. Let's figure out how we can work through this so that you're not missing out on what's prideful for you. So how do you, as a a mother, and you went through it with a young child where they probably couldn't articulate their goals, how did you identify problem behaviors? And for those not watching, it's air quotes, but I mean, it's, uh, how did you identify what those sticky behaviors were?
1: So I think there's, I think you made a good point in that like problem behavior is really defined to the person. And but I want to be really clear in exactly what he said, that the behaviors that his daughter was exhibiting, meaning the nail biting, isn't necessarily quote unquote a problem behavior, but it is a problem when it starts to infect her quality of life and her inability to get specific goals done. It's almost I would even equate this sometimes to, stim, to stimming. Now I don't necessarily try to deter stimming. My daughter still stims. But if the stimming became overwhelming to the point where she could not function in her day-to-day life then that now becomes a problem behavior. I want to be very clear on the distinction of those two. So in the example I was just discussing which is our story and a lot of people this is why problem behavior needs to be so clearly defined in your mind as a as a behavior that is impeding on the potential quality of life for the family and for the child this is where it kind of opens everything up because could I handle a crying tantruming child who would cry every time I go to the pantry and every time I try and figure out what she wanted, she'd smack it out of my hand. Could I survive with a two-year-old doing that? Absolutely. But the problem with that is, is that it's not teaching her, the pro- the, it, we're not looking at the cause of the behavior. One of the big things about my program and what we talk about is we need to understand the function of the behavior to create the solve. And I want to think about, yeah, it's, you know, I can deal with maybe a crying two year old, but could I deal with a seven year old or 10 year old or a 15 year old smacking things out of my hands? Will that behavior look the same or could it actually look worse if we don't, if we leave it untreated? So that's kind of like my perspective from what I shared. So yeah, you know, she was crying a lot and it's terrible to hear your baby cry. But like sometimes if I'm not describing problem behavior as, as impeding on quality of life, I might take more of it. And then I sprinkle a little autism diagnosis on top of that. I'm almost expecting to have to deal with this. But if yeah. I have that expectation and I never address this as a problem behavior, the only outcome that's possible is for it to get worse.
0: Mm-hmm. No, and I, I think that the insight that you have as you're looking through that to be able to say, you know, what yeah. is going to be equally valuable for my child, what what's functional for them to be able to do to replace what's occurring. Becomes the most important question is that a crying child is a crying child. They're emotionally distraught for some reason. And if we're not figuring that out, then we might be in a bad position when we're solving. We might get rid of crying. Crying might then turn into a punch. A punch might turn into something even more dangerous because we haven't solved to why that is occurring yeah. and what purpose the crying is doing. So what strategies? As you worked through this, and I mean, you've, you've had your personal experience, you're helping other families to, to kind of unwind the process. What strategies did you find most successful in addressing some of these issues?
1: The first thing we need to do is I like to put space between the incidents And myself, so I can look at it with clarity. I always say to my moms, when they come to me with, with, you know, whatever they're working on, whether it be pie training, communication, or problem behaviors, and they're seeing things they don't like, and it's triggering emotions in them, I can't look at it clearly when I'm rolling around in the dirt in the moment, right then and there. So what I, first thing I always try to do with problem behaviors is I always try to avoid, I always call, I I used to call it the uh, autism mom bomb squad method, meaning we wanna avoid the bomb from going off to begin with. That's the first thing, right? So we wanna try and avoid the behavior from happening to begin with. If it's something really problematic, like running in the street or eloping or biting, we gotta figure out, immediately figure out what the cause is and then try and avoid it from happening in the first place. That's number one. Like what are the triggers that may cause this behavior to happen? So that's first. Then the next thing is if the behavior happens, because sometimes it's just going to happen. Maybe you were, thought that you had removed all the stimuluses that could cause a child to bite, and they bit anyway. I need you to take a deep breath and kind of put some space between yourself and the instance, so that you can see it from the drone view. I always tell my parents, you can never see it from the drone view when you're in the middle of it. You have to almost like take some space, calm your regular, you know, your nervous system, so that way you can look at this and say, okay, what was the cause of the bite? You know what I mean? And then once I understand the cause, then I can come up with a game plan for the solve. And there's something in the ABA world and I'm sure Jeff can, uh, knows all about inside and out is the meets, which is an acronym for the reasons that unwanted behaviors occur in children with autism, or actually all children, to be honest with you. Any child that's exhibiting problem behavior, um, there is one of five categories for the, re- for the function of why that is happening. Do yeah, and I, do you want me to
0: share what that is? <laughs> ah, I mean, I, I, we can definitely go go into because I mean, I, we're probably going to want to hit on each one of these functions individually, but you had actually, you had brought up a topic that I think that oftentimes we as parents fall into pitfalls for. It's the idea that whenever a behavior occurs, is that at the moment it's it's always a teachable moment or we always have to win that power struggle and it's not the case i mean there are times where a i'm not ready as a parent to work through it appropriately b my child is not ready to learn that new school skill yet um so what do you what do you suggest at those moments i mean do you have uh, certain things that have worked for you just to de-escalate just to say you know what, I'm not going to teach right now. I'm going to escape the situation right now. And that is my only goal at the moment. I can get to the teaching later. But do you have techniques for that?
1: So the first thing you want to do is obviously safety is number one. So if the child runs in the street, you want to try and address that. First thing we're going to do is obviously bring the child and yourself to safety. If the child's being aggressive, we want to try and Um, you know, put some safeguards in place to stop the aggression if somebody's getting hurt, whatever the case may be. Safety is always going to be your first. We got to get to a safe space mentally, emotionally, physically before we can do anything. That's number one. Number one is we want to try and use any skills that we may already have from dealing with these behaviors in the past to calm the child down. Like if it's gotten to a point where the bomb has blown, We've really, this isn't a teachable moment. <laughs> the teachable moment will come later. We want to, the teachable moment is the actual event, but we don't teach in that moment. It's just a little, the child's not on receive and you're really not on, send, on a proper send to give a message to the child. So we want to get the child probably as neutral as possible. It may take some time to calm them down. Then after that happens and we've kind of regulated the child, I need you to go off and kind of just take a minute for yourself. I don't believe in fails as a parent of a child with autism. I'm either learning or I'm winning. And that incident, although uncomfortable as it may be, there's so much that I could learn from this if I can give myself the space to just have my own little heel, my own little cry about it, punch a pillow, whatever it's going to look like. So that when, I, when time has separated the event from me, I can actually look at it from an objective standpoint, which is like the drone view that I talk about.
0: I think that, I mean, just even just going back to the two things that you just kind of hit on there, it's uh, the idea is that you're either learning or you're meeting the goal. Um, That's a (laughs) win-win. As a parent, we don't have win-wins that often. That's such a cool perspective to take. And it's probably hard to get in that mindset. When you're working with families on this, how much do you have to really hammer home that you know, learning is a win. Like it's, you don't have to feel like you have control all the time to be doing a wonderful job. I think we're hard on ourselves, Yeah. but how do you work through that process to get to, and, and we'll talk on all the uh, functions of yeah, behaviors yeah, yeah. and everything, but how do you get to that emotional part?
1: So I guess what I always do with them is I show them back the data they presented to me. So they'll present the You'll know when, when, when we have brains that are very dramatic in the way it, they create thoughts to keep us safe. And some of the thoughts, are most of the thoughts are pretty toxic. And it's not like your brain's trying to um, make you live this miserable life. It believes I need to present you thoughts that scare the shit that I keep you safe. So like I would have a parent, right? And this is an example, example that had happened. She went, they went camping and it was later in the day and Uh, The child was up on top of a slide and there was a little baby up there too. And he pushed the baby off the top and the baby fell. And all the mother could say to me is that the baby's face hit the rocks. This is all I kept saying. Now, thank God the baby was fine. It was just, you know, a terrible accident that happened. The child pushed the baby. Baby might've been in his way. What We ended up discovering from it is that all she could see in that moment was just the baby's face keep hitting the rocks, hitting the rocks. And that's not helpful that all that does is make you feel like shit. All that does is you can't learn anything from this. So if we wanna prevent him from behaving like this in the future, I can't create a solve from just reliving the most traumatic part of the event over and over. So what I did with that mom is I said, this was very traumatic. I'm not even not acknowledging that it wasn't. And I'm so grateful that the the baby and the child, everybody was okay. But what can I learn from this scenario to avoid it from that caused it and that could avoid it from happening in the future and one of the things that we did discover and she just we basically i had her explain the whole day up until that point and it was a very long day for this child and this child normally naps and he didn't and there was a lot of stimulus and by that time in the day he was probably very tired and Mm -hmm. when a child is tired neurotypical neurodiverse they will not be the happiest of campers and their behaviors will show it and we kind of both acknowledge that maybe we should have been maybe we pushed it a little bit on this on this day of camping and had i not pushed it and will i not push in the future i could potentially avoid something like this from happening
0: Mm -hmm.
1: that's where i want to show you your thoughts like listen all her brain wanted to do was keep giving her the visual of the baby crawling. falling that's not helpful if you want to really help your child to avoid doing something like this in the future, I need to understand why it happened so I can create the solve for it.
0: Absolutely. And and oftentimes our response to those situations themselves is that if we're not going into it calmly, yeah. if we're if we're then we we're in inadvertently potentially reinforcing something that it, that maybe we didn't want to, maybe when that child was pushed is that um, we immediately went to the wrong child and started giving all the attention to them and um maybe that's what that particular child was looking for at the time was you know maybe they were looking for attention and we gave it we gave it in some format there um what is it? So when we're talking and, and we spoke about the functions of behavior and we and and I think that the idea of being calm, the idea of not always having to win, the idea of being deliberate in our responses is so important. Um, but as we talk about those functions and um, I mean, you, 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 we spoke about attention. There's also that kind of that access, the ability to be able to Get what it is from the environment that you want at any given time. There's the um, the escape function of, you know, can I get out of it? Whatever is happening right now, all I'm trying to do is withdraw from it. I just don't want this occurring anymore. Is there something going on there? There's that automatic, the sensory component, which we have to be aware of. Um, there's also a piece of, uh, of it that's just counter control. It's uh, I mean, it's it's a, a function not often talked about, but it's just the ability of a child, like adults, to want to control their environment to the max extent. And even if they know that they don't want something at a given time, or maybe they do want it, but control is so much more powerful, is that they're still going to want that control of the environment more than anything else. But as you're working through these, these don't work in isolation. Functions often intermingle. So for a parent to work through that and understand exactly why somebody wants or why a child's responding. Um, How do you help them to ascertain that? You mentioned data. Um, Is that, I mean, is that your first step is, you know, let's just start understanding it before we intervene
1: on it? Yeah. So first thing I want to say is like the knee-jerk reaction to that example I gave is to freak out. I get that. It's not necessarily trying to control that part of your response. It's how you move forward after that. She could say, we're never going camping again. And how does that solve for his behavior? It doesn't. It's just, it solves for my fear that I don't ever want to be in a position where he's going to push a child off of a swing set. You understand what I'm saying? So that's the first part of it. Then what I try to do, the space between you and the event is so crucial because you can be a little, you're not, you're more objective and less emotional when there's some space between. So then what I like to do is, and I'm sure Jeff knows this is the ABC. I'm not formally trained in ABA, by the way. This has just a part of my life. It's in my DNA now, because this is everything I've ever been exposed to. It's called the ABCs of uh, an event or a behavior. So the first one is the antecedent. Uh, that's the A, that's what happened before the incident. The B is the actual behavior itself. What did it look like? And then C is the consequence, what happened right after. So what I do is I really just ask them, tell me the ABC of it, what exactly happened before. And then I ask questions if, I, if I'm not clear, what the actual behavior looked like and then what happens immediately after it. And listen, there's no, he, Jeff is right, there could be two, multiple functions for a specific behavior or I could think it's attention seeking, but then as I ask questions or we implement a, a system, assuming it's attention seeking that's wrong, then we can go back and say, okay, let's look at it again. Maybe it was escape and avoidance. And I had it wrong. There's no wrong with this. There's no fails with this. We're always trying. We're learning until we win every time. So yeah, so that's how I do We basically go through the scenario, go through the incident. I ask for the ABCs of it and they can start seeing it themselves. Like all of a sudden they can move away from the drama of their brain, just bringing them to the worst part of the incident. Every single time they think about it. And they can start looking at the data of what actually happens.
0: Yeah, I, and I think it's it's hard to collect that data. And I I understand from a parental perspective, you have so many things going on, but having that information, like any decision going on in your life, whether it's a financial decision, whether it's a big uh, business decision, um, it's it you need to have actionable data to be able to do it correctly. Um, so I, I do emphasize that, that that that's so important. And don't ever think that, you know, I'm just going through the process of tally marks or whatever it may yeah, be. Yeah, it's
1: not like that. Exactly. Not for me anyway. I, I do tally marks and stuff like that for like toilet training, but I don't necessarily do that specific to these events. It's really just like what happened before? What did it look like when they did it? What happened after?
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. And as much as that you can get, that I mean, the the more informed you are and the better decision making, um, you actually said something that uh, maybe I don't think about enough, um, and it, and it had to do with the context of the story that you shared and the and the potential parental response of, well, we're never going camping. Yeah. There's always going to be kind of that co-occurring behavioral dependency you're gonna have the behavior of a of a family member or a parent or an intervener that is occurring at the same time. And they're going to have a function of their behavior in natural life occurring at the same time as the child. Yes. How right. important is self-awareness in the process of intervening in all of this? Because I could see I mean, if I go back and reflect on my own life, I probably fail at this all the time. <laughs> So, I mean, it's like, how important is it to take a step back, deep breath? Okay, where am I right now? Where, what function am I trying to fulfill as I'm trying to help my child at the same time? I mean, do, do you work with family on, you know, maybe it's important to assess ourselves and our own behavioral yeah. objectives.
1: Um, this is what I say, you know, my program, I have a group coaching program where I, where I coach parents for children with autism and help them. Uh, teach your children all the amazing, important life skills like the pie train, the communication, stopping problem behaviors. Um, but 95 percent of my program is your thoughts. That literally the tactical you already have inside you. But because you're having all of these, like I always say the mind is like a furnace. And this isn't my quote, but its uh, I read it somewhere and I loved it. The mind is like a furnace. It could warm your house or burn it down. And all of the tactical that's needed to get your child potty training and communicating and stopping problem behaviors is inside you already. You just have real thoughts that are blocking your ability to access those resources. So I have Mm -hmm. it, I'm gonna give it to you. I know what I'm telling you is not something you haven't already heard. What I'm gonna show you that you haven't heard that nobody ever really talks about enough in this community is that your thoughts whether it be autism is cancer. I talked to a mom the other day, she was doing all the things I would tell her to do in my program, except she said to me that she believed her child was gonna need lifetime care. He was three years old. You can't, you can't help your child if you already think that the opportunity's gone. Yeah. And that's why, believe it or not, you know, we give them all tactical, we give them lots of tactical support, I, I sell them what they want. But when they come in, I give them what they need because it's really the thoughts that are, we're letting run rampant. It's like a toddler running around with scissors in your brain. And I need to stop that shit in its tracks. I need to understand like the power that has. If I always call it the invisible umbilical cord for my moms, right? That it's garbage in, garbage out to the baby. Mm-hmm. As soon as you start thinking something different, like I did that moment when I said, I'm going to die one day who's going to care for when I'm gone. That's what, that was my course correction. That thought in that moment that I want to know that I leave tomorrow and I did everything I could. I showed up the best way I could for my daughter. Mm-hmm. Know what that was going to do for her actual development. Yeah. Had that not happened, I don't know where she would be today.
0: Absolutely. And I mean, just did. To- to go back to how we started this conversation is that um, that hope paid off. I mean, it's uh, and and everybody's journey will be different and people will have different timelines and different wins, but it's, it's knowing that, you know, you're going to hit wins that you never thought were going to be part of your experience. Yeah. As long as you continue to look at, you know, what's next, what can I continue to do? Um, I have a, I have a question for you because I mean, you, you talk about that communicative part, um, and, and that was a whole other episode we talked about. Um, one of the things that, uh, and I, I guess it's a, it's a passion project of mine right now, is the fact that we have, as a community, started to give voice to those in the autism community who can voice their own uh, opinions and voice their own needs and voice and advocate on their own behalf. The group that we might not be hitting all the time in empowering that voice are those that maybe don't have the voice yet or are communicating differently. And that shows up in behavior often. So when you're talking about, you know, how do I effectively communicate, build relationship, understand what's being communicated to me during extreme behaviors, how do you work with families to, to kind of not disempower the child by taking away their only ability to communicate frustration or anger, but to see that that's there, respect it, and still intervene at the same time? Like, Where does that, where's that juxtaposition occur?
1: So my belief is about nine times out of 10, a problem behavior exists in a child because they are frustrated, they can't communicate and needs. So if we're seeing this all over the place it's the first thing we work on like i need to get that child an ability to communicate and this is the thing and we talked about this on that last um podcast communication and being verbal are not the same things and that's a good thing we can communicate in other ways first and then verbal language can come so if i always have a vision of a thought on one side of a wall and a voice on the other side And if I imagine a neural pathway connecting the two, it's like it's dormant, like it's asleep. I need to create a bridge, a bridge form of communication so that child can immediately get their wants and needs met. When Juliana learned sign language, she learned cookie by the end of the first day. I couldn't believe it, how fast she learned it. And then she ended up learning 10 signs within a week. Her problem behavior, which was constant tantrum, instantly stopped. That cloud that I saw come over my child at 13 months, gone in less than a week, because she could express herself with her hands. Yeah. That was I had no idea she'd ever speak. I didn't know. All I knew is she was happier than she was a week ago. Mm-hmm. And this is what's possible for all of our babies. So yeah, so when we're dealing with this, we don't want to not, like, we're not going to try, it's not like whack-a-mole. We're just going to whack it, and then another problem's going to pop our problem. Another problem is going to pop up somewhere else. The idea here is to give them an appropriate way to express themselves while we're starting to build on the ability to have vocal lines.
0: Yeah. And I I think that that's the that's the first step to empowerment in general is to give a voice. And I think that we've all learned this over time or we're all learning it over time. Um, But at at the same time, is that uh, I think there is value in when you're starting the process of behavior change is to understand that you know protest behavior is communicative right. um and my first goal for anybody to get them into that learning situation that we talked about earlier is have to have a willing partner here like i have to have somebody who's assenting to the fact that they want to be a part of the environment i'm creating yeah. in order to help them to learn the new skills that are going to empower all their other skills in life so um when you start this process with a, with a with either when you start it with your daughter or when when you are helping other families instead of jumping 2 feet into the pool and saying all right we're doing it all what is the importance that you see in establishing a new relationship around wanting to be a part of that environment together before you even start the work
1: so I guess what I always tell my families when they come in, I say, okay, you know, what are the things you want to work on? And they'll have a full list. And I'll say, okay, what out of all these skills would improve quality of life for the family and for the child, if I could wave a magic wand and give it to you. And then that usually it's either potty training or communication, because I think there is an underlying understanding that the problem behaviors a lot of times exist because I, I'm frustrated. So um, yeah, and then we just will start working from, from there. And then we work on one mask. I always say we major in one, we minor in the other, right? So while we're majoring in BB teaching sign language, we're minoring and getting the child just be okay with sitting on the potty. See what I'm saying? And then we, and then we can, this is how it's always worked with Juliana is that we've always have like this major focus, which right now for us is social skills, but I'm minoring in picky eating. See what I'm saying? So then I always move in everything and all the um priorities can move around and shift as time goes on as she gets older and age-appropriate problems may arise we can always shift and, and adapt and pivot and that's kind of just how I run the program and how I teach parents how to teach their children all these life skills because this is not just a a one and done we're, we're parents till they're 18 we're really parents until we're we're gone let's be real you know I'm, she's gonna be my baby even when she's 40 or 50 years old and I'm in a wheelchair. But, um, I, I, you know, I tend to be as, as active a part of a light of her life as possible. And I always had this identity of, before the diagnosis, that I was going to be a mother that brought up children that are going to make this world, like, going to be such a strong, wonderful con- con- contributor to the, the world after I'm gone. And that's still the intent I have, mm-hmm. breath, even after she's 18. Now that I,
0: I was going to say, it sounds like she's, it sounds like she's already hitting those strides. Yes, that, yes. Uh, So
1: Juliana talks. She's got friends. She goes to sleepovers. She is doing amazing. She's on a swim team. And that almost never happened. She she pooped in the pool five weeks straight. I almost quit. And that's ah. just what i mom. on with. I may not go camping again. I may never go to, I'm, we're never going to swim lessons again because she kept pooping in the pool. But I had to put space between myself and the incident. Oh, okay. This is why it's happening. Create the solve. And now she's on a swim team.
0: Oh, ah, that's so awesome. Um, and I think in a future episode, we're definitely going to have talk about the picky eating, but I do want to make sure that families leave with some ideas and resources. Um, I know that you've put together some resources on this um, that uh, you'll be able to share with us, but where should families be turning to just to even start the journey on some of some of the behavior issues that are occurring? What's that? What's a good resource you'd recommend?
1: I'm going to be sharing uh, with Jeff the Autism Mom Survival Guide to Problem Behaviors. It's an e-guide, a PDF I created that's really going to take you to step by step on how to address these behaviors. First thing we're going to try and do is avoid them, figure out what are the triggers to and avoid them first. And then we're going to work one by one on each of these behaviors to figure out why they're happening so that we can create a solve. So I'm going to give that uh, guide to all of the listeners for free. Um, you will also be able to find it on our website it's at michellebrogers.com. And I'm on Instagram at michellebrogers.
0: Well, thanks again, Michelle. I appreciate you coming on and I appreciate you sharing your and your daughter's experiences. Um, I think that it's just always eye opening and being able to talk just openly and honestly uh, between clinician and parent. it it For me, it's it's a pleasure. So I appreciate it. And hopefully we'll get you back on to talk about picky eating.
1: Yes, it's
0: been always a pleasure to speak to you, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly Podcast by visiting abskids.com.
1: Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week.